Please um, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6. And if you would, please stand with me as we read. We're going to read verses uh, 10 through 20. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints, and for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Dear Father, we've prayed already that you would illumine our hearts and transform us, and pray also that you would um, be Lord of my lips here today. We know that this is your word, and it is true, and it is pure. May it be presented true and pure today. We trust in you, the Holy Spirit, to do this. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. It's a, a joy to be back with the saints at Cornerstone. Pastor Clark told me a bit about where the Lord has you and where the focus is right now. God has you resting in His love, trusting in Him and the outcomes of uncertainty, but trusting that in His provision, providing much courage for the daily life, and also for the battles that he brings you into. Today's sermon is on truth, and uh, considering the context of our passage today, and also considering the context of where you are, are living, the message is this. Truth equips you for the battle, serves you in the battle, and blesses you after the battle. In other words, God's truth uh, prepares you, sustains you, and refreshes you. And as Pastor Clark mentioned, that there is, there is a, he, he told me this, that you guys are resting in God's love, and there is a resting in God's love. God's love is shown 
and it is exercised by his truth. It's a truth that comes to us in love. He didn't have to reveal the things that he did reveal to us. He revealed truth to his church because he loves his church. He spoke truth in parables that we might know the meaning. And he spoke in parables so that the unbelieving and defiant would be confounded. They do not get the truth of God's love, but praise be to God that he chose us to receive his truth. A bit of a, maybe a broader context for our passage today. Of course, this is the famous passage on spiritual warfare. But we need to understand that the battle, the battle that the Ephesians were in and the battle that we are in is a subset. It's a subset of two strategic campaigns that were put into execution at the fall of man. When you go into battle, you, you need to have the context. In the military, we always started every planning meeting and every mission with an, an intel brief, an intelligence brief. Where is the enemy? What is his plan? What are his strengths and weaknesses? What's his most likely course of action? What is his objective? And then we also think about our side. The blue side, the reds, reds the enemy, blues, the good guys. We get the commander's intent, our commander's intent. What does the four-star general or, or admiral want us to achieve? What are his objectives? Genesis 3 is where the battle started. And after the fall, we, we read about the fall. And after that, we get this amazing insight into all of history in just one verse. You know the verse, Genesis 3.15. Speaking to Satan, God says this, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And what does enmity mean? Enmity is this, the state or feeling of being actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. That's enmity. There's no reconciliation between those two. There must be a victor, and there must be a loser between these two campaigns. This was a great truth revealed to us, and, and I believe it was a declaration of war on Satan. Since then, all of our struggles are part of this conflict between two campaigns. Satan's objective is what? To steal, kill, uh, kill. Sorry, my Texan comes out sometimes. To steal, kill, and to destroy. And Jesus' objective can be seen in chapter 1 of Ephesians, the book we just read. So turn with me back to chapter 1 of Ephesians. And we can read verse 10. Ephesians 1.10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. That is Jesus' objective 
to gather together, to reconcile heaven and earth. Theologians call this the endemic vision. Going back to the garden prior to the fall, Jesus' vision is to restore the Edenic vision. So what we are talking about here is revealed truth. And this revealed truth prepares us for the battle. It, it gives us the understanding and the nature of the enemy and of the conflict. And it will also sustain us in the battle as we engage in hand-to-hand combat. And afterwards, it will give us rest. Rest on days like today, the Lord's Day, where we drink in the word and fellowship and sacrament. The truth does all those things. So that's the broad context. And since we are just jumping into the middle of this passage in Ephesians, let's understand the immediate context a little bit more. In this letter, Paul has told them that they are chosen in Christ. Read, uh, let's read chapter 1, verse 4. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. He tells the church they have redemption through his blood. Chapter 1, verse 7. In whom, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And Paul then prays for the church that they would have understanding that the eyes of your understanding be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. And of course, this book of Ephesians uh, reveals to us, tells us the truth that we cannot save ourselves. We do not make the first move in seeking God. We can't do that, because after all, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. He saves us from beginning to end. Now, after salvation, we are not dead, but we are actually seated together with Christ in the heavens. It says that in chapter 2. So this is a truth that God brings in love. He didn't have to tell us how he elected us, how he saved us, or that we are seated in the heavenlies. He didn't have to bring this truth in order that we might be saved. We are saved, of course, by grace through faith. These great verses, chapter 2, 8 through 10. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And then the next verse after that, he says, Wherefore, remember... And he gives the history of how the Gentiles were brought in to the faith. This is truth, revealed truth. It tells us how the promises, how we're grafted into the promises of God. There are so many great truths um, revealed in this book. The church, the, the, the church is built upon the cornerstone. You know this verse, verse well. Um, look at chapter 3, verse 10. Uh, then it says... Um, Three ten. Is that what I wanted? Yeah, three ten. To the intent that now unto the principalities and power in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, 
in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. And later Paul prays again that we might know, know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. So that's the first half of the book here in, in Ephesians. The Holy Spirit, by the pen of, of Paul, has given us truth in preparation for action. Now let's go ahead and, and go to, back to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, and look at these verses here in 13 and 14. Ephesians 6, 13 and 14. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. Notice that in this passage, this is the, uh, this is the armor of God. As we would say in the military, this is the battle rattle. The different things that you put on. And the belt of truth comes first. It's the first thing. Truth is the first part of the armor of God. Faith comes later. Faith comes by, by what? By the hearing of the word, which of course is truth. So in verse 14, truth is represented by the Apostle Paul as a belt. A belt is not something that you usually put on first, right? Right? Um, but I think we get the idea. It's something that holds everything together, and it gets us ready. My son and I have a small construction business. Uh, it's about a year old, and we've, we've just now started out on our own, and a couple of weeks ago was our first major project. It was to build a deck um, out the back door of a house there in Red Oak. Now, the first thing you do when you build a deck, those of you who have, and I know Larry's about to do some maintenance on one of, one of them, um, you need to find the true corners of the deck. Where are the corners? From then, you can drill holes in the ground and put the footings, or the piers. Where we live, because of the frost lines, we have to dig deep holes, 44 inches deep, so that it doesn't heave in the winter when the ground freezes. Well, we did that. We dug six of them. And uh, long story short, um, we put them in the wrong places. <laughs> uh, that night I was laying in bed and uh, the Lord brought to my, my mind some, some engineering aspects and then some building code aspects. And I thought we may have put them in the wrong place. And I got up in the morning and I checked and sure enough we did. And uh, I remember that breakfast when I told Ethan, my son, you know that work we did yesterday? Well, we get to do it again. We all have similar stories, don't we? Getting the truth is primary. It has to come first. And, and, and that's why our homeschooling, and I'm speaking to your parents, I'm speaking to your children, that's why our homeschooling is so important. We are setting the footings in the proper place to build So this is about truth. Now, when we say truth, Another word for that, another practical word for that is doctrine. Doctrine is simply the learning of truth and the teaching of truth. And we talk a lot about doctrine, don't we? Sometimes in the conversations with other Christians, the, when we speak of doctrine, sometimes the connotation is good, 
And sometimes the connotation is bad. You will hear someone say, you'll, you'll hear this a lot, even among, among faithful Christians, that doctrine divides. When you hear that, when you hear that doctrine divides, this is what you need to think, and this is maybe what you need to say, is, well, sir, doc, if doctrine divides, then a division was in order. This is assuming, of course, that we are correct in our understanding of doctrine. Misunderstandings of doctrine have caused many unnecessary divisions. But if our doctrine is true, we unify around the faith. And a true doctrine will unite. It says that in Ephesians chapter 4. Now, on doctrines, on truth, the Bible says that some things are weightier than others. Some, some truths are critical. Some truths are not critical. They can be learned over time. We can have patience with those on those lesser matters. But there are some critical truths. We're coming up on Reformation Day. Luther, of course, was concerned with the truth. Uh, he was concerned so much with the truth that he found 95 ways in which the church was not following the truth. You ever wonder why he stopped at, at, at 95? Um, I uh, preached a sermon based upon this a couple weeks ago, and I got the number wrong. I said, I said that Luther had, had 99 thesis, and I preached that, and every, all the husbands and wives were looking at each other with confused looks. So I've corrected it today. It's 95 thesis that he uh, hung on the castle church at Wittenberg. Luther was concerned about the truth. He was indeed. Now, he was concerned about basic truths. Very basic critical truths. I, I wouldn't say that he, was con that he was at that time concerned about the expansive scope and application of the later reformers like Calvin and Beret, uh, Busser and Knox, even like what we read today in the Three Forms of Unity. Those things flowed out. Those things came later. Uh, I read um, something, this is from B.B. Warfield, quoting a book that I'm, I'm reading, uh, actually that... Uh, Mr. Gilder gave me our covenant heritage. And this is what Dr. Warfield, Warfield says in this book. Lutheranism springs from the throes of a guilt-burdened soul seeking peace with God, finds this peace in faith, and stops right there. Calvinism asked with the same eagerness as Lutheranism that great question, what must I do to be saved? And answers it as precisely as Lutheranism answers it. But it cannot stop there. The deeper question pressed upon it. Whence this faith by which I am justified? It has zeal, no doubt, for salvation. But its highest zeal, speaking of Calvinism, is for the honor of God. And it is this question that quickens its emotions and vitalizes its efforts. It begins, it centers, and it ends with a vision of God and His glory and sets itself before all things to render to God His rights in every sphere of life activity. Warfield's point is that Luther found truth and that others expanded on that truth in the battle for the church, for civilization, and for culture. And they did that not in pursuit of, of their own rights, but because of the truth of God. 
God teaches us that, that throughout history, the Christian life is one of learning the truth, applying the truth, being corrected back to the truth, and then expanding that truth out into every area of life. So truth prepares us. Truth also sustains us. We are told to gird the loins, our middle area, with the truth. Peter writes something very similar in his book. Uh, you can turn with me there if you want. First Peter. First Peter chapter 1. First Peter 1 and uh, verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Gird up the loins of your mind and hope, how long? To the end. Truth sustains us. So that's what we need to gird about and put on. Now, what is truth? We have to, we have to ask that question today because modernism and postmodernism uh, answers that question with a bit of disdain. They imply that truth is up to the individual. Individual interpretation and modernism are worse than postmodernism. There is no truth. We believe otherwise. We've all, I believe, started homeschooling this fall, and the parents have picked out the curriculum, and um, um, some of y'all are way ahead of us on this fall. We had a little slow start, if anybody can identify with that. But we want truth there. We want Christian curriculum because it sheds the light of truth on all subject areas. But what is truth? It's a big question. What is this belt that we're supposed to put on? And I believe that in answering that question, there are two other questions that we can ask. First of all, what is the source of truth? And secondly, what is the storage of truth? In other words, where does it come from and where does it reside? And the Bible says something quite unexpected to the natural mind. The source of truth and the storage of truth is in a person. The Word made flesh in Jesus Christ. Jesus said that he was the way, the truth, and the life. I'm going to turn to John 14. You can turn there with me if you want. Another familiar, lovely passage. John 14. 14, 6. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by And while it may seem strange to our minds that truth resides in a person, it really has to be that way. You see, because um, Ephesians 6.14, remember, that it says that we start with truth. That's the first thing we put on. You have to start with truth. And where do you start with truth? You start with truth in the beginning. In other words, before there was creation, there had to be truth. Um, we're not going to go there, but Colossians says that Christ made all things visible and invisible. Is that in the creed as well? Nicene creed. So truth really has to reside in a person. It has to reside in God. He's before all things, and in him all things consist. 
Jesus is the truth. And book, the, the book of John shows us that Jesus is the truth and that he presents the truth. Here's some other verses. John 1.14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Bible also says that Christians are of the truth. It's part of our makeup, actually. After we are born again, it's an essential part of us. We are born of truth when we were born again. When talking to uh, Pilate, Jesus drew a distinction between Pilate, who was not of the truth, and his followers, Jesus' followers, who were of the truth. This is John 18, 37. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end I was born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Who hears the voice of Jesus? Christians do. So we are of the truth. Because we are Christians, we are, we are priests. We are priests of the Word, and, the, and then we have the Holy Spirit. We can witness to the truth. We can witness as John the Baptist did. John chapter 5, verse 33. Ye sent unto John, and he bear witness unto the truth. So going back to John 14, 6. Jesus proclaimed that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And Calvin points out that there's a progression there. We have to come to Christ first to get the truth. He's the way. And the truth Calvin believes is the perfection of faith, wherein the way is the entrance into it. Now, again, John 14, 6. Did you hear the exclusivity of the way to truth? Did you hear the necessity of Jesus in getting the truth? No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So truth originates and resides in a person, the Word made flesh. And the, the, the way you, you put feet to this doctrine is this. Truth is in a person, and truth is in a person that we are united with. That's our access to the truth. And if all Christians are united to Christ, and they have to be, that's the essence of salvation. All Christians are united to Christ. And all Christians are united to each other in Christ. Then truth can, Jesus' truth can sustain us in our battles. Now, when you go into battle, you want something that will last. And this is why, ladies, your husbands want to spend so much money on weaponry. He wants the best. That knockoff Chinese gun sight just is not going to do. No, sir. You need the best of the best so that it will work when you need it. And truth is the same way. You want the best. You only want pure truth. This is the truth that will sustain you. Listen to Proverbs 23, 23. Buy the truth and sell it not. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. Let's turn back to Ephesians chapter 6. Now this section, this section on spiritual warfare can be misunderstood. Sometimes people see this battle as a defensive 
battle as a stationary battle, one of endurance, but that's not the case. Paul's idea of spiritual warfare was to move forward. Um, if, if it weren't the case, if it, if it were just the case where you were just going to stand and endure the attacks, then I see no reason to gird up the, 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 the loins. As Peter said, you need to gird up the loins so that you can what? You can run. You can move forward. You can advance. So this verse here is telling us, verse 14 is telling us, to suit up in a way that we'll be able to advance and to stand in victory at the end of the battle. In other words, to still be alive and to be able to walk around the battlefield. You see, we need truth to survive and to not become a casualty. Now, why is truth so important? Logically speaking, tactically speaking, truth is so important in the battle because what is Satan's primary weapon? Deception. Satan's primary weapon is deception. The primary thing he wants us to do is to compromise on the truth or to at least have less confidence in it. Have you ever had that feeling that maybe the things you've held to in the Bible are not as true as you once thought? If so, you're under attack. You're under attack by the deceiver. The good news is that there is an action plan for that contingency. Gird up the loins of your mind, as Peter says. Put on the belt of truth, as Paul says. It's the same idea. And take confidence that even if you begin to lose faith, even if you begin to have what you might say are micro-doubts, the truth of God's word can and will bring you back. But if that happens, if you're under attack, this is no time to sit back. It's no time to avoid the issue. It's time to get right in there. Get right in there with prayer. If you, if you have doubts, if, you, if your faith is lacking, talk to your parents. Talk to other believers. Talk to Pastor Clark. When Paul says, gird yourself with the truth, it must be very practical. It must be just as practical as if you were going to do any project. Learn from others. Read the books. Be diligent as a workman in the scriptures. Because Satan's first blows will likely be in the realm of truth designation. So gird up the loins of your mind. Another threat to be aware of is that we, uh, fallen yet redeemed, even with us, is that we may know the truth but not want to accept the truth. This is quite common, I'm afraid of, especially among Christians that are not grounded in good biblical truth. They see that truth, but they don't want to accept it. There was an Anglican, Anglican preacher named Richard Cecil. Uh, I don't know much about him other than this illustration. He was an evangelical Anglican, so I, I think that means he's of the sorts of J.I. Packer, which of course was a very biblical um, pastor. Anyway, Richard Cecil tells this story of how he taught his daughter to trust in God. 
he came home one day and, and she was playing with some beads. It was obvious that she loved these beads and her daddy came up to her, Pastor Cecil, and said, nice beads. She said, yes, sir. You seem to be very pleased with them. Yes, sir. He said, throw those beads into the fire. Little girl, tears. <laughs> what a cruel sacrifice for my dad. And uh, she hesitated, and uh, he said, well, do as you please, but know that I never told you to do anything that I did not think would be good for you. So she gathered up all the courage that she could, and, and she threw those beads into the fire. A few days later, Pastor Cecil came home, you can anticipate, with a full box of larger beads, and he gave it to her in tears of joy and that little girl. He tells this story, and he says, he writes this, Those, my child, are all yours because you believed me. When I told you it would be better for you to throw those two or three paltry beads into the fire, you believe me. Now that has brought you this treasure. But now, my dear, remember, as long as you live what faith is. I did this to teach you the meaning of faith. You throw those beads away when I bid you because you had faith in me that I never advised you but for your good. Put the same confidence in God. Believe everything that he says in his word. Whether you understand it or not, have faith in him that he means you good. And uh, another thing I want to say about truth, and this is very important today. The world today wants you to think that truth changes, that it advances and evolves, that we grow into new truths. This has been around from the beginning. It's nothing new, um, nothing new under the sun. It's simply the humanist view taking on different forms today and maybe with a little more vigor and acceptance. But Christians believe in unchanging truth. God, who is truth, Jesus is truth, does not change. And therefore, truth cannot change. This idea is repulsive to evolutionists. You see, um, for them, if truth originates or if it is progressively discovered by the human race, then we can help ourselves and eventually save ourselves. But listen to what Psalm 100 verse 5 says. For the Lord is good... His mercy is everlasting, and His truth endureth to all generations. The truth does not change. It does not change. Now the next question we need to ask in this, in this idea of truth sustaining us is who needs the truth? In other words, who is the audience of truth? Indeed, truth is personal. We talked about that this morning in the Christian Education Hour. Saving truth comes at an individual level, but truth is not just personal. It's also public. And if we want to maintain truth, there needs to be a public aspect of truth declared. Turn with me to Ezekiel. Back to Ezekiel. And we'll go to um, chapter 33.
Ezekiel 33. I'm going to just uh, give you an example. I, w- I want you to see this exhortation to the, the church to proclaim truth to the culture. So let's read Ezekiel 33 verses 1 through 12. Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of thy people and say unto them, When I bring the sword upon a land, if the people of the land take a man of their coast and set him for their watchmen, if when he seeth the sword come upon the land, he he blow the trumpet and warn the people, then whosoever heareth the sound of the trumpet and taketh not warning, if the sword come and take him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and took not warning, his blood shall be upon him. But he that taketh warning shall deliver his soul. But if the watchman see the sword come and blow not the trumpet, and the people be not warned, if the sword come and take any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. So thou, O son of man, I have set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel, Therefore thou shalt hear the word at my mouth, and warn them from me. When I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die, if thou dost not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require it at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the wicked of his way to turn from it, if he do not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Therefore, O son of man, speak unto the house of Israel, thus speak ye, saying, If our transgressions and our sins be upon us, and if we pine away in them, how should we then live? Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, Turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? Therefore, O son of man, say unto the children of thy people, The righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression. As for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall thereby in the day that he turneth from his wickedness. Neither shall the righteous be able to live for his righteousness in the day that he sinned. It goes on, you know, in verse 13, to say, do not trust in our own righteousness. But the scenario that Ezekiel was in is a battle of truth. You see, because what's going on here is that the culture thinks they are just fine. Autonomous thinking. And this is the truth that we need to proclaim, that you're not just fine. Truth needs to be part of our public life as well as our private life. Do you see how this relates to us? We have a requirement to proclaim that truth. If not, we have some responsibility. Now, not all of us, I understand, are prophets like Ezekiel. Not all of us may have that exact calling to go out and proclaim this in the streets. But what I'm saying is that the church has this role. And then in some way, everybody has, you have the truth. If you're a believer, you have the truth. Make sure it's not just private. Make sure it's public. So truth prepares us 
You have to get truth before stepping onto the field, before the bullets fly or the arrows fly. You need to have already learned the truth, study the truth. Truth sustains us. It sustains us because truth is in a person. We are united covenantly and somewhat mysteriously but gloriously to Christ. Truth sustains us in the battle because Jesus is truth and he's with us. This truth is for us personally. It's for our families. It's for the church and it must be made known to all society. And finally, truth refreshes us. Have you noticed that the Psalms, which are songs of the heart, are so rich with the truths of God? And in fact, what I, I, what I think is the sine qua non, that's the Latin for uh, without which nothing, I think that the sine qua non of the Psalms is the truth proclaimed there. If the Psalms were not giving God's truth, how could they possibly lift up our souls to the powerful because of the truth that's there. Psalm 19 and, um, and uh, Psalm 119 come to mind. I'll just read Psalm 19, another familiar one, but a beautiful one. I'll just read the middle section of it here. Let's start at verse 7. Psalm 19, 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right. Listen to this. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The essence of the Psalms is that we need instruction and we need encouragement in the truth. We need to be rooted in truth against Satan, against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Because Christ's campaign is to restore all things to himself. And that is why we need truth to prepare us. We need truth to sustain us. And we need truth to refresh us. Remember that deck that I, I mentioned, the one where we didn't set the footings in the correct place? It was very hard to redo that. But after the deck was built, we looked at where the supporting beams were and it felt really good. We know that it will pass inspection. We know that when they're walking on that deck, it's not going to give away. We know that that deck will last for decades and it is quite beautiful, if I can say so myself. God's love is a loving truth and he wants us to rest in it. So family, rest in God, rest in his truth. And I just want to end the sermon with that verse that we read from 1 Peter. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for giving us your truth, preparing us for battle, sustaining us in the battle, refreshing us after the battle. Uh, what a wonderful thing is that we can turn in confidence to your word and we can turn in confidence to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is truth, unchanging. In Jesus' name, amen.